Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 43, D.E. Foster from Easing Anxiety and the Benzo Free Podcast. And today it's July 3rd, 2023. On June 12th, 2023, I spoke to D.E. Foster. D.E. Foster is the founder of Easing Anxiety, host of the Benzo Free Podcast and author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. He's also co-chair and a founding member of the Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup at the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention and a global advocate supporting those struggling with anxiety and benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal. Hi, Dee. Welcome to Benzo Tired. Well, thank you, Nafta. It's so good to be here, I tell you. It's so lovely to finally have you on. Um, it was so great being on your show. Yes, that was great. Thank you for taking that time. And that was a great one. Just put that out not too long ago. So yeah, and thank you again so much for being here. So could you share with the audience who is not familiar with your story, how benzodiazepines came into your life? I'd be happy to sure. I mean, not that it's a great story, but I'm happy to share it. Let's put it that way. Um, And I was prescribed clonazepam by my primary care physician around 2002. Um, for stomach distress, actually. Um, I was never diagnosed with an anxiety condition. Had some moderate, you know, anxiety periodically throughout my life, but never a medical kind of thing. And so for some reason, my primary care, I think, assumed that um, maybe my stomach distress was tied to anxiety or something. So he prescribed um, clonazepam or clonopin. And I took that for 12 years as prescribed, switched a few doctors during that time, but never once, you know, heard any warnings or any cautions as so many of us do, you know, don't get that, you know, caution from a doctor Mm -hmm. until finally I went to a new physician we had relocated and got an apartment down in Denver. And, um, uh, this gal, she actually prescribed me Prozac and I was wondering why. And she said, so that's so you can come off of the clonazepam. (laughs) And I didn't know I needed to come off the clonazepam. Um, and of course that led to me pulling things up online and um, a significant panic attack that night when I started to read horror stories as so many people have done. Mm -hmm. And um, so I freaked out and, you know, just, I, you know, wanted these things out of my body right away. And I, you know, the usual stuff so many of us go through when we start to think that, hey, something's going on here. And um, so I went back to a couple different doctors, but none would really work with me. And I finally went back to a doctor I had a long time ago. And even though he didn't believe that I needed to come off the drug um, per se, he was willing to work with me. And he actually asked me to, um, to though, wait six months before I started to taper because, um, I wasn't mentally stable. I, I hated that at the time, but it was like the best thing he ever did for me because it allowed me to establish some anxiety management tools to start meditating, do some yoga and do other stuff, which I think put me in a better place. Um, so eventually I tapered for 18 months and came off the drug. I tapered directly. I didn't use any other, didn't use diazepam or anything else. Um, finally jumped off of a quarter milligram of um, clonazepam. And then I had, you know, some pretty severe acute withdrawal symptoms, especially after I took my last dose. Still have some symptoms, I'll admit, at eight and a half years off now. But at the same point, I always want to make sure everybody knows I am significantly better than I was. Uh, my most recent wave was, I think, more triggered by a case of long COVID. 
Um, you know, so I think that just kind of that COVID doesn't seem to play well with um, pencil withdrawals. So it kicked me in, but I'm doing better on that and I'm starting to feel better again. Um, I think that was just a temporary, you know, um, wave and stuff like that. But I still have some symptoms that carry on. At the same point, I'm still healing and I'm doing much better. Um, also, I always want to make sure I always let people know that I also had complications and I am still dealing with symptoms in part because I did a couple things wrong. Um, and also in part, you know, because I have some also other conditions like ADHD that complicates this. Um, um, and so, and also we're in the minority, you know, those of us with long-term consequences, as you well know, are, mm -hmm. are the minority. Most people can come off these drugs in a, in a few months or whatever and do pretty well. We just don't hear from them quite as well. as you Right, know, so. right. So a few questions, if you don't mind me asking. Please, so, please. Yeah, yeah, when you were first prescribed the clonopin for, unquote, stomach issues, whatever, uh -huh. how did it make you feel at first? Um, it seemed to help a little bit. So I, I'm wondering if, I don't know if it really helped with the stomach. My, I've had chronic stomach issues my whole life, IBS, acid reflux. In fact, I write this morning, I had some nasty acid reflux because that's come back with the long COVID. Um, but I had different, you know, I had different problems throughout my life. So I periodically go to the doctor and we work on different things um, and try different things. I think this doctor eventually got, you know, ran out of things to try and thought, so he thought I'd try the anxiety medication. I also had moderate anxiety. So I think it helped that too, but I don't, I didn't notice a significant difference because I wasn't, you know, you know, diagnosed with any severe chronic, you know, anxiety issue. And right. I think it also wore off quite quickly. Um, so Do you remember your dose that you were prescribed? Yeah, my, my dose was originally 0.5 um, uh, milligrams, and I finally worked myself up to two milligrams was my final dose on clonazepam, which as most people know is about 40 milligrams of yeah, clonazepam. It's so a lot. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a lot when you're dealing with yeah clonazepam or um, alprazolam or halcyon. Those are the most potent ones. Um, and you know, that, that's, a, those are very strong drugs. So yeah. And, and when you started to taper, did you use the Ashton manual as a guide or how did you? I did. Yeah. So when I was doing my research, um, when I found out what happened, I of course then just did everything, you know, I researched like crazy. I did over, I downloaded over a thousand different articles and researched, you know, everything I could find, um, found Benzo buddies, um, as so many did, I found the Ashton manual. Uh, I found some other, a couple of Facebook groups. One of those Facebook groups was one I used. Um, and I started getting help from, and then I started providing help um, back, you know, how that kind of normally happens with so many people. Um, but so, yeah, so the Ashton Manual did become my core. Um, I didn't do a substitution taper, as she mentions, isn't that so much, but um, I did, you know, follow a lot of the basics in the manual. And then, of course, I started getting other support from some of the discussion groups and online support groups. Right. Well, what I, th I think is interesting about the Ashton Manual, even though that it's dated, um, now that crossing over or tapering directly is kind of, you know, more of an option these days is that even yeah. she stated that especially people that come from Clonopin seem to struggle more with crossing over than anyone else. It does seem, yeah, cl yeah Clonopin has, uh, has its own, you know, <laughs> each drug actually, we're learning this more and more, but each drug has its own characteristics. Um, you know, and so we're seeing more of that. It's, it's anecdotal, but like with Clonopin, we see actually... We, we've anecdotally seen a higher propensity for more protracted withdrawal. Um, but it's, you know, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the worst drug. It's like, you know, Alprazolam has its own complications, Annex does, and so does Ativan. Each one seems to have its own characteristics that we're starting to see um, through some of the research. Right, right. And how was your taper? My taper was 18 months. Um, it went pretty well. It, I had symptoms when I started. I, I, let's put it this way. I had tolerance. I just didn't know it. 
um, once I started educating myself, I went back and realized, oh my gosh, I was having some symptoms. And as so many of us know, I just wasn't tying them to the drug. I didn't, I never put those two together. So I was already in somewhat tolerance. So as I started to come off the drug, I started to get some, some symptoms. Um, uh, you know, got to go back and I've had over 50 symptoms. So remembering which ones came where is always kind of fun. Um, but I had some throat tightening initially and I had um, some paresthesia, facial paresthesia, which I still get today occasion. Um, and other symptoms started kicking in, but they weren't severe. I kept working for a while as I was tapering off. Um, and I was tapering off at my own pace. Um, you know, every now and then I was, I was feeling good, I would cut and I was directing my own taper, even though I had a physician helping me. He wasn't really educated on that area. He was just a guy that, you know, a doctor that could help um, make sure that I wasn't having other symptoms and that my symptoms weren't related to other problems. So he was really good for that. Um, but I was the one directing my taper and I would just talk with him and say, hey, I want to go take my next step or one of those and we would work together on it. Um, but over 18 months, I did that. And then finally, I got down to a quarter milligram because, you know, I could only cut so much. I wasn't doing um, I wasn't doing any scales. I wasn't doing liquid hydration. I wasn't micro tapering. I was just cutting the pill down. And, you know, the smallest pill for um, from for um, clonopin is actually 0.5 milligrams. And you cut that in half and you got 0.25. That was as small as I went. And then I jumped off. And unfortunately, that kicked in a pretty serious, you know, couple years of um, withdrawal after that because it's pretty strong. And that's that's a high dose to come off of. You know, it's yeah. 10 milligrams of diazepam I jumped from. So that's, that's significant, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. We're, we're learning five, more five and milligram, more. Five milligrams. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if I can get the numbers right, but yeah. But even on the Valium, you know, I've, I've read so many stories by now and, and when I was active on Benzo Buddies, it just seems yeah. to me that, um, it's, it's more, people are more aware that they have to taper very slowly and, you know, jumping in terms of Valium or diazepam, zero point something, you know, that would be yeah. the best for most yeah. people, for most people. For most people. And again, it's, you know, that's the one thing you and I have discussed this a couple of times, but it's just everybody is so individual. You know, I, I really avoid on my podcast and stuff using a blanket statement as to, you know, don't jump from this, whatever. It's so individual. And you really, we really have to work with each person individually to decide what's Definitely. the best path and what paces. Yeah. So. And yeah, and I think there's just several options and so several scenarios. And I always think it's important yeah. that people know, know of them. So yeah. um, you wrote a book. Maybe you can tell yeah. the audience a little bit about that. Yeah, as I mentioned, I when I was going through it myself, I think one of the, and it was probably kind of a coping mechanism, to be honest, I think it, but um, I just researched like crazy. It kept my mind busy. It came up with some answers, but I think it also was coping for me to get through some of this. So um, I wound up with over, like, over a thousand different things in this OneNote file that I have, uh, still have on my on my laptop. And um, and I just felt like, well, kind of when I'm feeling a little better, I'm kind of getting down to where I can come off the drug. I have all this research and I felt it would be kind of silly if it didn't turn into something. So I decided to write a book. Um, and many of us have done that. And I thought I'd be one of those people. So I wrote a book and I continued for the next couple of years working on it and just researching it and um, and doing all kind of work. And then in 2018, I published the book, I think in the fall of 2018. And it's um, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal um, on Amazon. So it's still there. Um, and it's been really helpful, I think, to a lot of people. This also was really helpful for me because I can fall back on some of the research in that book. I wrote the whole book as a Q&A 
um, is a style that I've liked in the past. So basically, it's as if somebody's asking me a series of questions, like in this interview that you're doing right now, Neftal, and, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. And that's how the book's written. So it's a bunch of questions, and I try to be a little humorous at times, but I try to make it casual and that and approachable from that aspect. So, right, right, and 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 then we come into your podcast. How did yeah. you think of making a podcast series? Um, it all came from the book. I wrote the book and thought that would be great, but uh, for the book, I probably need a website. So um, when I launched the book, the same time I launched benzofree.org, which was my first website, it's not my current one, but my first one. Um, and then the next spring, I decided, hey, maybe this podcast thing sounds good. And part of the reason why the podcast made sense to me was I had a lot of gear. Um, I, I was a, um, a drummer for years, so I had PA, PA equipment. I have a soundboard. I had some mics. And I felt, well, this is something I'm already geared for. You know, these are just sitting around. So um, I pulled that up and kind of made a go of it. And um, I actually recorded five episodes up front. I think we were discussing this earlier. Um, but I, right. I recorded five episodes up front and, and tossed those out there. Um, and they got a little attention. And then I started doing weeklies. I'm doing monthly right now because there's so many other aspects I'm busy in in the Benzo world. But um, And I'm still trying to do, I'm, you know, do blog posts and everything. But the podcast... Um, took off it's on a bunch of different carriers and it's on a um, we have a youtube channel now on easing anxiety and so it's just keeping keep me going it's it's been become the thing more than the book you know i think the book is still people are still buying it which is great and still reading it and give me feedback but um the bens the podcast became my primary vehicle to be honest yeah yeah and as the community i want to thank you for that um oh, as we've dis- we've discussed before i found your podcast a little later and well, you're the one, the one with the Benzo podcast that has the most episodes and, and you can really tell that you really put everything into that. So how was it like to be creating the podcast series and that it took off and you, you getting all these guests on your show? Uh, it was great. It was, um, I think number one, the key thing to, to say here, and, um, I think you had similar experiences, but it saved me, um, podcasting and getting the feedback from the people that were listening to the podcast, that correspondence got me through probably some of the hardest times of my own recovery. You know, I was recording this and doing this when after I'd come off in some of my harder days and um, people were, you know, watching my progress and go through that and we were corresponding. So just that aspect, that correspondence and meeting people and connecting with people um, saved me. It was, it was amazing therapy for me and that became almost my primary therapy of course i was also seeing therapists at the same time but um nothing helped me more than just the feedback from individuals you know and going back and forth in the podcast so um and then from that you know i just started to create other things and i started to you know the website benzofree.org um was kind of getting hitting limitations so i moved over um, so now I'm on e- Easing Anxiety is actually the, the name of my site, easyanxiety.com. The Benzo Free Podcast is on that site now, but we also do some work with anxiety. I'm building a community platform and it just keeps growing and I've done all different, some videos that we've done. And so it just keeps growing and um, it just kind of organically keeps building on itself. And it's been, it's been a true um, venture. So I, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. And as we've discussed before, is that you find people in your journey at some point, and what, by the time that I found you, when I was looking into you, I'm like, hey, you mm-hmm. made all these YouTube videos, and hey, you actually were um, a founder of Bind, and you've there's so many things that you committed to in studies, and can you yeah. tell the audience a little bit about that? You know, it's so weird, because I think 
I think it's, it happens to anybody that just, I just put a, a lot of time in, to be honest. And, um, but I also met amazing people who became my friends and pulled me in. So being part of the Benzo community, um, I got to, I started to meet early on some people over at BIC at Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, met some people at the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and they saw my podcast and they reached out for different reasons. And you started to kind of build a few friendships here and there. Um, and then I was, there was a grassroots effort that started here in Colorado. Actually, we called it Benzo Wise Colorado at first. And it was myself, Dr. Stephen Wright, who was an addiction psychiatrist, one of the co-founders of the Benzo Action Workgroup. And um, and so he was part of that. And John State, who is still one of the people out there that's working within the Benzo community and some Jill Dario and these other people that all formed this and Terry Schreiber and I can go on and on, Christy Huff and all these people. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started this grassroots effort. There was also a an effort from the um, Consortium for Benzodiazepine Best Practices in Colorado. And they were looking into it along with some people at CU and doctors. Anyway, that kind of all came together in a couple of meetings with some of the state agencies for um, dealing with, you know, drug addiction and drug dependence. We were kind of following underneath that umbrella at the time. And, um, and so anyway, all that led to this benzodiazepine action work group, which I now co-chair with Dr. Alexis Ritvo, who's a psychiatrist at University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Center. Um, so she and I now co-chair that. And I've been a co-chair there for two years now. Um, along with her, Stephen Wright, Dr. Stephen Wright was the original co-chair with her, but when he retired, I stepped in and took over for that. Anyway, so that's where we, a lot of us meet together. So Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, many of their members are active with this group. Um, the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices are active with this group. Benzo Warrior are active with this group. Um, my group is Anxiety. So a lot of those other larger organizations are active. And so that's how we kind of start working together. So that's how this kind of comes to play. Well, anyway, in the background before that, one of the people that was also a co-founder of this Benzo Action Work Group was Jane McCubrey. And she was a creator of the Benzodiazepine Survey. We just kind of call it the Benzo Survey of 2018, 2019. And it was the largest survey ever conducted of people who are dealing with um, short and long-term consequences of benzodiazepine recovery. And mm -hmm. so that was co-created by Jane McCubrey, PhD, and Dr. Christ and Christy Huff, MD. Um, and so Jane pulled me in because I had some data experience and I had benzo experience. So, you know, because I had both of those, she thought I could help her. So we started working with some data and then we started linking in with the Alliance and Bernie Silvernail. Um, long story short, um, he pulled in a couple doctors, Dr. Peter Martin and Dr. Um, Reed Finlayson out of um, Vanderbilt University in Nashville and um, also brought in a writer and um, Alexis Ritvo, Dr. Ritvo, my co-chair, fellow co-chair came in anyway. So that team started just to evolve. We published one paper in 2019, another paper in early, I'm sorry, no, that's not correct, 2021, I think. Our second paper came out in early 2022 or late. It's, my numbers aren't right off the top of my head, sorry. Um, okay. But so we started published paper. Our third paper is coming out pretty soon. We got it approved. We're just waiting for a date and a published date, and that'll be the third paper from the research. That'll be our final paper on the research. So anyway, this was a big survey of over 1,600 people. Um, we finally brought it down to 1,207 individuals that were qualified. 
and that became the base for this survey. And it it's taught us so much. And this is that. So we're publishing the third paper on on the findings. The first two papers are actually available online for anybody that wants to go look at them. So I think oh. that's that's kind of. Please ask questions. That's me kind of jumping around on how that kind of happened, but. Um, it's been exciting that I've been included in it. I'm honored just to be part of this research team because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by MDs and top psychiatrists in their trade. And, um, it kind of blows my mind that I've been included, but I think I brought some data analysis experience and I brought this experience through the podcast of dealing. I work with people individually via email and chat and everything. And I think from that, I have this kind of I have some knowledge about what people have gone through and of course my own lived experience. So I think that's helped the team and we're still working on some new projects and it's been, it's been amazing, but a lot of information came out of that and we're really excited. Part of that then tied in with the bind thing. So that kind of got me back to bind what you right. So right. I'll stop there and you can ask whatever questions you want to. No, I think that. bind, I mean, um, I, I, I think you realize that everyone in the Benzo community is now really turning to the term bind where even though it's not officially a thing yet, we're all just saying bind. Yeah. So that is a big deal. And, and, and there's some pushback out there too. We've, we've gotten that recently. Um, there's pushback on the term too. And we're totally open to talking about that too. So we're not, you know, turning a blind eye. I think there's some pushback from the psychiatric drug community. There's some pushback from some benzo benzodiazepine. There was some pushback from another coach who has his own podcast. And the, so we, we we were on each other's show and talked it out. And I think we're pretty cool now. So, you know, we understand that. It's like, we're so used to these other terms. Mm -hmm. And so this new term comes along and who are these people that suddenly created this new term and what's behind it. So I've been on some different shows here and there trying to help explain it. And so has um, Dr. Huff and some other people. So we're just trying to explain the basis of why, where this came from, why we created the term and why we think it's a good term going forward. Right, right. And the Colorado Consortium, which yeah. um, you are also a part of, can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's actually the work group that I mentioned earlier, that grassroots one, which was the benzodiazepine action work group. We are we we after we formed that, we quickly became part of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. And that body is kind of the it's like the state's organization that manages it's it, they manage the state's response to the opioid and fentanyl and prescription drug epidemic. Okay. Right. Dr. Alexis Riffo and myself, we co-chair this small subgroup, which is focused on benzodiazepines. So they were looking to expand into benzos because they had seen some of the problems and they wanted to have a work group. And we came along at the right time and it kind of fell together. So we became one of their new subgroups. Um, and we have been a part of them now for over two years now and, and been very active. And we work nationally, not just statewide. We are still a state agency. But because we have members from BIC and we have members from Alliance and all these members from across the country that are part of this work group, most of our work actually has a national focus and has a national reach in the work we're doing. And we've created documentation online, which, in fact, I just published on my site a reminder about that yesterday, I think. Um, some great documentation on prescribing, de-prescribing, which is tapering, and peer support is on our site, which is the first thing we did. Um, we are just have now finishing the whole peer support training program, which is what I've been working on nonstop for the past year. We've had a team of amazing people from all over the country working on this with us, including some a consultant from a research um, group. And that is now we got our Colorado course is kicking off here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we did the pilot last December, and this is a course available to help do formal training for peer support specialists specific to benzodiazepines. 
Um, so we're really excited that we got that to launch. We've been doing um, continuing medical education through the work group. Um, uh, Dr. Huff and I did one of the parts of a four-part series that um, that Dr. Alexis Ridfo did um, with a pharmacologist on her side. So that now it's creating videos. Those videos are just now coming out and they're actually continuing medical education or CME certified. So which means doctors can take those and get CME credits by taking these courses and hopefully educate them more on benzodiazepines. So, and we're doing other projects too. So that's just some of the top ones we've done since that group's been put together. And it's, um, it's amazing the people that are involved and the hard work that they put into it. So. Yeah. And I, I'm so grateful for each and every one of you and just every, anyone who is just, you know, trying to make an effort and make a yeah. change. And, you know, I really see a lot of good initiatives coming from all over the world. Although I have to say the U S is like really ahead in terms of um, the rest of the world, in terms of what I've seen yeah. so far. We've definitely made some some progress, especially in the last, I would say, since I've been part of it five or 10 years. I'm just seeing all these amazing people like yourself and other people that have come into the community that either have been harmed or have recognized the harm and have decided to, you know, sacrifice whatever they were doing and just dedicate themselves to this cause. And it's been amazing and it's making a difference. And um, I'm just amazed at all the people that are coming in and doing that kind of work. So thank you to you um, and people like yourself who are, are joining the bandwagon and, and being part of this. So. Yeah. And I think we're uh, the ones that, that I speak, including you, and I think myself, mm -hmm. we're so passionate, you know, we're so passionate exactly. to try to I educate people and just sharing our stories and other people's stories. So I, I was just wondering, what is your take on the black box warning that y'all have since 2020? Sure. 2020. Yeah. yeah. So um, for those who don't know, black box warnings are warnings that are required from the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. And it's a, it's a label on a prescription medication and that is required by the FDA to have this label. Um, the black box warning are the, are the more stronger warnings. And they were called black box because they used to be in a black box. I don't think they still have to be anymore, but that was why they called them black box warning. But anyway, it's a required warning label to be added to the literature or added to the bottle for certain prescription drugs. Many drugs have these for different reasons. Benzodiazepines had one, I think it was 2018, 2019. Um, it's had a couple before. One was on its concurrent use with opioids. Um, many of us in the community know that taking benzos with opioids is really bad and extremely dangerous and can be fatal in many instances. So that's the first one that came out. The one that came out in 2020, which is the one we pay most attention to, is the first one to actually talk about long-term damage um, and the whole idea of physical dependence and long-term. Now, there's definitely some addiction language in this too, because that's still a the terminology a lot of the medical establishments still use, even though we're constantly pushing, trying to use physical dependence more often right. because it's more it's more realistic. It's actually it's more accurate. And that's why we're pushing for that. It's more accurate. Um, but they do talk about physical dependence and they talk about slow taper and they talk about um, long term complications. And to have that has been huge because it's something we can now keep falling back on. Um, and some of the groups I work with, like the Alliance and BIC and other groups were actually in, uh, involved and very involved in getting that to happen. Um, so that just shows you what these groups out here are doing is that, you know, that they're, you know, I know the Alliance constantly has meetings with the FDA and I think BIC has some too. And it's like, they're always out there doing these things that I'm not, I'm clueless on. So some of the work that these teams and these groups do is just amazing. So. 
yeah, I, I think it's awesome. And I was like, why don't we have this? You know, and I think, I, I think know, Canada yeah. has one. I think maybe Brazil or Argentina has one, but yeah, I don't know what the Nether in the Netherlands what you guys have as far as you know what your your governing agency is over prescription drugs. So I, I'm not as familiar or other European. No, areas the only so thing much. that I know, and it's actually this takes me back a, a couple of years because I remember it's 2018, and I'm on the Florazepam or Delmain, right? And um, my partner and I, or then husband, we were going to Scotland for vacation on vacation. Right. That was the first time ever, ever well after America, that was the next vacation to come. Uh -huh. And um, I needed to get a form to bring with me my benzodiazepines. And I was like, that is so weird. This is a medication. Oh, yeah. Why do I need to, yeah, because, you know, it's a controlled substance. I didn't know. And I was like, that's yep. strange. I'm getting a medication for my tinnitus and sleep issues. And why do I need a form? Now I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first sign that there might be something going on here. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I had no clue. No, there, there uh -huh. aren't. Uh, strong warnings at all they're very vague um yeah. lots of the 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 pamph insert pamphlets don't even state that it's not good for long-term use it just basically they kind of like point to each other right so the insert pamphlet is is kind of saying your doctor will tell you have do you have any and, questions go exactly. to your doctor and then the doctor know. doesn't know and you know so it's it's yeah it's, it's a struggle for us too it's, and you probably face this too but on the podcast it's like you know I still have to refer people to their doctor um, legally and also just it's the right thing to do. It's like, I, I don't believe, and I get pushback on this sometimes, and maybe you feel differently, but I don't believe anybody should come off these drugs if they can help it without the supervision of a physician. I actually believe that. I'm also required to say it because we can never yeah. pretend like we're telling anybody to ignore a physician's advice, nor should we. You right. know, they are the licensed doctors, we're not. Unfortunately, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah. a lot of the doctors aren't educated on benzodiazepines, exactly. and so, unfortunately, they can yeah. do some things that can harm the patients sometimes. So that's the that's where you and I and people like ourselves are caught, you know. Yeah, I I think in one of my episodes, let, let's start with this. I, I um recorded a different intro after episode I don't know ten or so when people were picking it up, and I was like, oh, I I wasn't ready for that at all. I wasn't expecting it. I was like, maybe in the future someone will listen, or maybe just a few people. Yeah. And I did do the intro where, where I say like disclaimer: always consult your physician for medical advice, right. which is true, and yep. just to be safe. And we do need a prescriber, but um. You know, it's kind of, you know, political that you have to be about it because what I basically tell people yeah. is like, just get educated. But if you have a very difficult situation with your prescriber, um, you kind of have to like arm yourself with knowledge because unfortunately, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. unfortunately we do have some doctors who just don't believe bind exists or that there can be problems. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a lot of disturbing kind of signals, especially from the US. I think maybe that's kind of the flip side of the black box warning that now doctors are cutting people off or- And that's happened before. Uh, you know, a good example of that was Ireland. They did that. They cut, came down hard on benzodiazepines at one point. Um, this was a, oh, about four or five years ago. And unfortunately, the downstream effect of that was that doctors were no longer wanting to prescribe, which is good, but also bad because now people on benzos couldn't get the drugs. Mm -hmm. And that created a whole nightmare of people, you know, who had to be taken off cold turkey or abruptly because they couldn't get the drug to taper or even maintain their dosage. But, you know, one of the things with the doctor thing that I, I've come to and after four years doing the podcast, you know, that's probably the most common question is how do I find a doctor? Or do I need a doctor and everything? So I always try to fall back on a few basics. Number one, 
it doesn't have to be a quote unquote benzo wise doctor. Mine wasn't, you know, it, it has to be a doctor who will listen to you, work with you and prescribe what's needed for your taper. Okay. That doesn't have to be benzo wise. I've educated four different medical professionals since I've gone through my, you know, on this and they now prescribe differently and they now understand this. Um, the main thing is you have a physician who will listen to you and work with you. And, and, and that's, that's what I wound up having at the end. So one thing I always tell people is like, it doesn't have to be this, you know, quote unquote, benzo wise doctor. That's great. But it's somebody that's willing to work with you that sees that this is important to you and is willing to. And th that's where the education of yourself comes in, which I totally agree. You know, you need to be educated on your taper on what's going to work for you. You need to get educated on that kind of stuff. But yeah, I get pushback all the time on, but I can't find a doctor or my doctor did this. And I don't have great answers. And that's what's frustrating. You know, the yeah, only, I can think, say, yeah, it's yeah, different I can for say everyone. Keep yeah. looking. I, can, I tell keep looking. It's like if you can, maybe it's the fourth or fifth doctor you go to, but keep looking and try to find a doctor that will work with you, that listens to you. That Those are my things that I think are the key. If you have a doctor who will li really listen to you, sees that this is a problem and it will work with you on it, that might be the right doctor for you. You know. Right. Well, I think in my case, let, let me to, to be safe here. Yeah. Let me just talk about my what happened with me was in a nutshell that my GP just thought, oh, this is becoming too difficult to handle, and I'm just going to refer you to an addiction facility. And I had one yeah. good prescriber that was willing to believe me, and was she was just very honest. I don't know anything about benzo withdrawals, so, and, and, and you know, and you you've had to educate yourself, and I believe you, and that's usually all that we need. We believe you, but I've also had some really bad ones. So in my yeah, personal yeah. case, with the gift of hindsight, having this long acting benzodiazepine, um, which comes in capsules, um, <laughs> maybe I just would have not poked the bear and just tapered myself because yeah. unfortunately what happens in my country, I'm not really sure how that is in other countries, the refills, they just keep refilling it. Unless, you know, you say like, I want to yeah. come off or it becomes an issue. Maybe they will cut you off, but you know, I, and for, some, yeah. for some people, that's how they have to do it. And I totally get that. I'm not at all downplaying that some people are forced to come off as drugs without medical help. I think it's horrible they have to. But yeah. I also understand for some people, that's the only choice they have. All I say is if you can find a doctor, it's good for, for two primary reasons. One, you need somebody to prescribe. Okay. Yeah. If you're coming down a dose, it's always helpful to have somebody that can prescribe and keep that prescription going for your taper. Mm -hmm. um, number two is the symptoms. Um, for me, having a doctor you could go to and saying, okay, I got chest pain or I got this happening or whatever to eliminate other problems or other causes. You know, we are often just going nuts with all these symptoms. And a lot of times we run to the doctor and say, hey, this is happening. This is happening. To have a medical professional that knows what you're going through to a degree and is with you on the journey is huge. You know, I finally, and I, I went to four doctors to find the one I finally stuck with for my withdrawal. Um, but that person then knew what I was going through, what I was dealing with. And he was smart enough to realize that coming off benzos wasn't easy. That's why he made me wait six months and yep. stabilize before I could start coming off. So he knew it wouldn't be easy. He didn't believe I had to come off them. And that's where he and I disagree, but he was willing to work with me. But just having that person there, because, you know, I've gotten, I had five EKGs, five or six EKGs coming off because I kept thinking I was having a heart attack. You know, all these things, but have that doctor you can go to who doesn't, you know, who said, oh, okay, you think you're having a heart attack again. Let's just test you and make sure you're okay. Um, and the nurse practitioner I was seeing at that time, she was great. She just would play it down. She said, no problem. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get you that test. You know, <laughs> even though she knew it wasn't it and I knew it wasn't it, but still it calmed me down 
And right. having that medical practitioner to work with you during that, I think is really beneficial. Definitely, definitely. So in, in, in your thoughts, um, what have you seen improve over the last, let's say, five years in terms of prescribing, de-prescribing and all that? I think prescribing has lessened a little bit. I do. I, I not nearly as much as I wish. Um, I actually think it went up, of course, during COVID. So that didn't help much. Um, people staying home, the anxiety of, of the pandemic and everything that actually the prescriptions went up, but then they did come back down again. Um, as things started to open up. Um, unfortunately, also, we're getting a lot of youth now that have increased rates of anxiety and depression. And of course, that also leads to more prescribing. Um, so I haven't seen the numbers more, more recently. Um, but I do think there's some education. I'm running into physicians. I just I just got a perfect example. I just got a new doc. Um, I, was, I was needed to move to a new doc. I just wanted somebody I was more comfortable with. So I found an internist here. And I just went to him last week. And walked in and, you know, I've gone to so many doctors as so many of us have, and you're always a little leery and you're always a little anxious and you're always not sure mm -hmm. when you walk in. But I walked in and this guy sat down and I said, I got one question to start everything off. And I think you know what the question is. What's your take on benzodiazepines? <laughs> you know, that's the question I always start with. Right. Um, and, and, and he said, okay, so where are you coming from, from that? And I said, well, you know, I was on it for, on clonazepam for 12 years, all this, if la di la di da And he said, yeah, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it was very quickly, he said, I totally know where you're coming from. And it's like, bam, we just hit it off. And after that, I just love this guy. So I've only seen him once. I go back again for a full physical this Friday. Um, you know, cause I'm, I'm seeing several doctors right now to still work through some of this long COVID and digestive stuff. Um, but it's, again, it's like, there's the good ones out there. And the fact that I'm seeing that a little more often, and I'm seeing people saying that a little more often that, you know, when they ask them on the benzodiazepine front, it seems like more doctors are up to speed. Does that saying that all are, my gosh, no, not even a majority probably are, but I do think that through continuing medical education and other things the doctors are starting to get the message a little bit and starting to see that this is a problem. And maybe, you know, maybe just saying, hey, you can pull off this drug in two weeks. They're starting to see that may not be the path that works, you know. Right. I think in, in my country, in the Netherlands, we're just barely waking up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like um, just shortly after I published, um, as you know, I started in Dutch. Um, yeah. Shortly after I published like two episodes, there was uh, a woman who uh, created a podcast series, like 16 episodes and that's it. And she was being uh, sponsored by addiction facilities to kind of like emphasize the problem and okay. there's so many prescriptions. So at any attention that goes out there, that's good. But that's like the one and only Dutch podcast that we yeah. have. I've had this wonderful uh, woman on my podcast, also a Dutchie who uh, is a taper coach. So she's the only okay. one in the, in my country that I know about. She went through hell herself. Um, okay. Maybe not as long. I think she had like a taper that lasted about six months and she got better yeah. in the end. Um, but she specializes in not only like benzo, but other okay. kind of like psych meds and things. But it's just a few people, just like just a few. Um, I know that they're researching flamanazil in my country to, to see. Yeah, everywhere. I know we're still yeah. looking at it. Yeah. So far, it's still, you know, 50 50. We've seen some great things, but we also have seen some problems. So I don't right. think there's a definitive answer on flamazanil right now. So, right, right. But um, when I just look around to other countries, the US is just so far in, in having coaches and having websites and having podcasts, everything. Um, so, yeah, I think. Um, and just Europe, maybe in general, just Europe, uh, a lot needs to be done. Yeah, um, 
that's the problem is the yeah. need is so huge as you know it um, is it is and, and i think the uk like, you tackle first yeah what, yeah, what, what area do we work in you know? yeah and i think the uk is kind of tragic because of the situation there with the nhs um there's yeah. a lot of issues going on there and they won't let you taper your benzodiazepine unless it's um diazepam or valium so they have right. their own kind of issues um but there's good initiatives though like in the north of london we've got melanie davis doing like really good yeah. work so there's just a lot that needs to happen but you know what i remember uh, finding christy huff and Bic and your podcast i'm like wow these guys and and the colorado consortium I'm like wow this is so amazing you know you, you guys are just working so hard and yeah. I hope you realize that you're really helping the international community with everything that you guys are doing. Well, thanks. Yeah, it, 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 my podcast taught me that quickly because I was getting, I mean, I've gotten emails and I've corresponded with people from countries I didn't know existed, you know, as <laughs> right. one of those, you know, American centric, you know, people that grows up here. I just didn't have enough geography as I should have. And I know some of the world, but you know, we're, we're, we're sometimes pretty centric. I'll admit that. And it's like, so I hear these countries like, Oh my God, I didn't know that that was a country. And I go look <laughs> it up. And I did that a lot. It's like, I'd get people to email me and I even talk about it on the podcast sometimes. And I would like be going, okay. And when I first did my initial podcasts, I would even share somebody's story and then I would tell a little bit about the country. Um, yeah, what's well, this a flashback? I would actually go research the country and then I would talk a little bit about their country before I told their Benzo story. Because I was that just awesome. It was cool. One of one of my um first ones was a guy out of Indonesia. Man, he was it was just great. And I was learning so much about Indonesia from him. And every now and then he'll pop me a note um and send me an email back. He's doing great now, fully recovered. The guy's uh, rocking and rolling, and I'm so proud of him and everything. But it's like, yeah, he was one of my first ones, and we just corresponded forever. And every now and then he'll drop me a line and just say, Hey, just wanted to say hi. And it's so cool to get that from him. So I think that's one of the most beautiful things in this journey for me is yeah. connecting to all of these cool people, including oh yourself. God, yes. Like every guest yeah. that I've had on, you know, I, I just said it like in a previous episode, like I connect to everyone in, in, in on a level, maybe some deeper than others. But yeah. I've met these these wonderful people and I, I really feel blessed that I speak English and I can listen and I can write and all of that. So it serves me well. <laughs> I'm really happy oh, yeah. with that. And, and in terms of, you know, being, you know, egocentric in terms of U.S. centric, I mean, yeah, US we get so yeah. much. Yeah, we get so much American media in my country. That's I how I learn English. The bold and the I beautiful, know. by the yeah. way, a soap yeah, opera. We, 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 they say, they, yeah, they say we export our culture. So it's like, you know, good or bad, we export our culture. So Yeah, but you do and um you know, know there's a lot of american news that we get as news yeah. you know <laughs> so there's a lot of american but, but unfortunately we don't absorb the international culture as much and that's where i think we could do better is you know it's like we export our culture we're happy to do that but we don't pay as much attention to you know it's like we have some really good friends from australia from adelaide and it's like and it's just always fun we started playing trivial pursuit with them last time they came to visit us and it's like they kind of turned up their nose because the version of Trivial Pursuit we play is so US centric. I never realized it though. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that, but they don't know the same things. And it's like, wow, this is a US version of a game. And I just never thought about that. And so right. it, was, it was a great, you know, woke me up. It's like, oh, well, yeah, right. These are probably 60% of the questions are very US based. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And definitely. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I find interesting is when when I got English for the first time at school, I already spoke English quite well, I think, but we get Cambridge English. So like very oh, British. Yeah, so we're supposed sure. to learn the the British 
words a lot, like right. swapping lunches and stuff. And that just doesn't yeah. sound really right in American English. So um, I did the original get negative... English, not us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, I, I did get some negative feedback from teachers back in the day by English teachers that they felt oh. like my accent was horrible. Because <laughs> it was more English-based? Excuse me? Because it was more English-based? Well, they all spoke very British, and I spoke oh, okay. American okay. English, and they were like, oh, you're ruining the language, blah, blah, blah. So, oh, because yeah. it's, okay, I got you. I got yeah, you. yeah, but I had this really one cool English teacher that was kind of down. She was like, you know what? This is your accent. We're yeah. just going to... Um, I'm just going to teach you different things like color without a U and stuff like that. Um, so if you're going right. to speak American English, do it well. And she really supported me. So she was cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I actually I maybe want to do an episode about the whole kind of journey on speaking English. Uh, but um, who knows? Yeah, yeah so I wish I would have followed through. I just I was going to say I wish I would have followed through because I took five years of French in high school. But I just walked away from it and haven't. You know, I keep thinking I'm doing one of those apps to try to get me back up to speed because right. I, I want to be bilingual, but I'm definitely not. So. Oh, I'm not bilingual. I just say that English is my second language. There you yeah. go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the second language. I dropped German. Um, it's odd because okay. people are like, oh, German sounds a lot like Dutch. I guess it does in a way, but I was so bad at it. And I was like, no exposure on TV, nothing. Yeah. I had no, it's like, what purpose would German serve me later in life? Like, so I, I dropped it after one year and yeah. I really didn't like it. <laughs> I started to study Russian. For a while, wow. I, was, I, worked, I worked. I worked for a Russian company here, and they they started teaching classes for the American employees if they wanted to take Russian. So I started studying Russian for a while. Talk about a difficult transition. That's yeah. it, you know, because it's a totally different alphabet. So it's like it's really a hard one to you know switch into. So yeah, definitely. So two more questions before I let you go. One question oh, yeah. I always ask my my guests this, like. Um, what would you want to say to people that are currently listening in withdrawal in terms of advice? Always oh, a good question. And yeah, I like that one. Um, here's the thing. Most people come off these drugs without a, any serious difficulty. It's so easy to tune into our podcast, to the stories, to read, you know, discussion groups and think, you know, the worst of the worst is going to be me. So my first thing would be is like, is, hey, you know, it's not going to be your story is going to be different. There might be some difficulties. You're going to get through this. If you get yourself caught in a protracted state like like you and I have and with those difficulties, reach out, get help, educate yourself, find some good support, have a good support team. That's, you know, that's your partner. That's your spouse. That's your doctor. That's your counselor. You know, um, these people are there to help you. So build that team and have a support team, you know, to get you through it and educate yourself and then just find ways of managing the fear and managing the anxiety. If you can find ways of doing that, this is a perfect time to develop really good um, coping skills. And when you do that, you do lower your anxiety to some degree. And by lowering your anxiety, you lower your symptomatology. I've seen this time and time again. The truth is there's not any medication out there, at least none that I've really seen that lock that's, you know, steadfast um, that fixes this problem. You know, it's like we're still evaluating things, but for the most part, it's a natural healing path that we're taking here. And so this is one of the few things you can do. But this gets better. And that's the primary thing. This is temporary and people get better. I see it over and over and over and over again. So please don't think this is a permanent condition. I constantly see people that are healing. 
Okay, and then for you, a special question, well, at least one that I haven't yeah. asked before, um, because you do have some lingering, um, you know, effects yeah. from the benzos. And what would you, if people are listening and they've been off for quite some time and they have some lingering symptoms or bind, um, what would you advise them next to the advice that you already gave? Yeah, I would say for those who are lingering, because those of who are what we call protracted withdrawal, we now call bind. Um, we, we call bind. A lot of people still call it protracted withdrawal. What do you want to call it is fine. Um, but this protracted condition, it's tough because it can last for months or years for some individuals. It can be extremely difficult. Some of the symptoms can be severe, but most of the ones that linger on aren't as severe as some of the early ones, but they can, severe ones can linger on and we've seen that. Um, but I think the, the primary thing to keep in mind is that this can be a long process. And once people, I've seen people just like that snap and once they've had acceptance, once they finally stop fighting it and just start realizing, okay, I have some limitations in my life. These symptoms are a pain, but I can learn to live with them while I have them, you know, knowing they will probably heal and ease over time. But once you get that acceptance and once I've seen that, you know, that, that switch, you know, on, it's, it's, I'm going to make the best I can out of this right now. You know, this has happened. I can't turn, I can't turn back the clock. It's happened. Let's move forward and let's make the most out of this experience. Meaning let's develop some skills. Let's find some coping mechanisms. Let's find some ways to get through it. I think that's the thing I've seen with most people that makes a big difference. It's more of an attitude adjustment, to be honest. Right. Well, well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for being sure. on my show. Oh, my and, pleasure, Naftal. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. I really wanted to do a post-show with the D.E. Foster episode because D.E. is such a cool guy and we get along really well. I was on his a podcast, the Benzo Free podcast. I was really nervous for that one. I heard it and I was like a lot of ahs. I, th I think it's a language thing too. If I get interviewed by someone in English, I kind of struggle, maybe a little bit more. But um, I think he did a fine job editing and uh, you know my story comes across. Now, why I wanted to do a post show was because I wanted to let y'all know that um, when I talk to D, <laughs> there's a lot of post show stuff. Like, you know, we end the recording and we could just, you know, talk for hours. Like the first time that we spoke, we spoke for like two hours, you know, and it's it's just amazing what he's doing. And it's also fun to, you know, exchange kind of podcasting things uh, with one another. Anyways, be sure to check him out. Um, I've added all the links that I could find, I think, in, in the episode description. So really check out D.E. Foster. He does a lot of work for the Benzo Harm community. And I'm really grateful for that. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well, be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash